0: Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to, and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. Uh, in fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses H.P. Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right. What are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one's going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March. And then again in April, you're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter, or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable, is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it it lets us work together with a a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand.
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about The Goddess of Death by William Hope Hodgson. This was a story that was originally published in 1904.
0: And this one was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters. And since it made it in the polls, that puts Hodgson back in the lead for the writer with the most stories that we've covered. Before we get into the story, though, we do want to announce some changes that we've made to our Patreon goals. We've heard from a number of supporters that they would like us to have more goals that are smaller and and not so far apart from each other so that the, the benefits that patrons get would grow more quickly, even if they're just smaller benefits. And we think that's a great idea. So we have added three goals, only $50 apart from each other. And what we're hoping to do is to add some extra seasonal Patreon episodes to October, November, and December. This will be things like Halloween episodes, Christmas episodes, and for November more episodes in honor of Remembrance Day, more episodes about the intersection of speculative fiction and war. Uh, In fact, the the story that we're about to cover is something very much like that, for example. This could also be ghost stories at Christmas, the Halloween episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or, or the Halloween episodes of Star Trek, for that matter. I mean, the possibilities here are endless. We're pretty excited about these goals and hope you will be as well.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited too. I hope I hope it's an opportunity for us to cover maybe some more TV shows, which we don't do that often. Uh, at least Glenn and I don't do them that much, so that would be a real pleasure to do, and just an opportunity to get more content out there to our supporters is always something that excites us at Clay Temple Media, and we're grateful to all of you who support us at the podcast. And if you're interested in getting us to reach some of these goals a little faster, you could start supporting us on Patreon or increase the level of contribution that you already give. Anything that you could do to help helps us get you more content, and we would love to do that. So head over to patreon.com slash and check us out. And you'll also be able to get to vote on what we cover as soon as you become a supporter. So thank you to everybody who already supports us. And we hope to see more of you over there at Patreon. Yeah, and we'd be really excited to make these extra
0: episodes, these sort of holiday episodes, a part of our yearly routine. But I think with all of that said, let's get to our present story. So as I hinted at there just a minute ago, the goddess of death has war at the the center of what is otherwise a supernatural murder mystery. And I'm looking forward to talking about that in the discussion. But before we get to the discussion, we need to recap the story. So let's get into it. Brandon, it's your turn to do the recap.
1: This story takes the form of a kind of classic stranger comes to town narrative. But in this case, the stranger is our narrator, and his name is Hurton. And he arrives at a town, a kind of classically unnamed town. And he discovers that most of the people in this town are in a state of panic. Hurton, initially, and with some good humor, inquires as to whether or not the townsfolk are worried about the French invading here, as this is as maybe this is the reason why people are in a panic. But instead, he's told a harrowing tale of a statue coming to life every night or every couple nights or enough and murdering the townsfolk. And he learns that nearly a dozen townsfolk have been murdered recently. And the first one in this recent spate of killings was the town bell, Sally Morgan. Obviously, Hurton thinks that this is just some small town, small mindedness and superstition. He tells us that he does eventually change his mind about this small mindedness of the small town, but this story is not about really him changing his mind. It's more about how he gets to the bottom of the matter. But one thing he does want to do at this point in the narrative is to alleviate the worry from the people in the town. And he thinks he can do that if he can just show them how silly they've been with regard to these rumors and beliefs about this marble statue coming to life. After all, marble statues typically don't leave their pedestals ever. And he can plainly see the statue on its pedestal when he visits the statue in the park. During the day.
0: Right. So there's a large marble statue coming to life at night. It's murdering people. Our narrator is going to prove that obviously that's not happening because that's not a thing that ever happens. It's not possible. Or, you know, if that is happening, it's definitely not supernatural. Basically, this is a Scooby-Doo episode, right? I mean, really, it is in the exact same template. We'll, we'll see how that, how that works out for the rest of the story. And I, I just want to mention here, although I don't think this will actually affect our reading of this story very much, this is a period piece, and what I mean by that is that although Hodson published the story in 1904, it is set much earlier than that. It's the the 1870s at the latest, it might even be the 1850s or the 1860s. And one of the ways that we can tell that is this comment at the beginning about the possibility of a French invasion. That was a real fear for the first two thirds of the 19th century. It was a common feature of British literature, but. After that, this becomes The Germans. And from the 1880s on, there's just a, a ton of literature about imaginary German invasions of England. Uh, these were popular beach reads at the time that Hodgson wrote this story. So even just the first line of the story here would, would, would clue readers into the fact that this is a period piece, that this is not uh, set in his contemporary world. I don't know that that will amount to much, but I thought we should
1: point that out before we continue. I'm really glad you pointed it out because Hodgson doesn't really take any time to point that out. To the audience. This is not a story that he wrote for posterity here. Uh, so he's not doing any work for a future audience. This is a contemporary piece written for a contemporary audience that takes place in a period in the past that would be familiar to the audience he's writing for. So, you know, this is the kind of work that sometimes you have to do when you're reading uh, these older genre stories to figure out exactly what the writer is getting at when he's setting the story, because they're not going to call attention to it. They don't have the the word count, really, to do it.
0: Yeah. And I imagine that there were probably a ton of other clues here, the writing style, uh, other sorts of details that someone in 1904 would have picked up immediately and said, oh, this is obviously the 1860s. Uh, I, I don't need this to be spelled out for me, but we're missing those context clues because we're not the audience this was aimed at originally.
1: Well, as we said, Hurton has arrived to this town and heard these stories, and he Goes to get a hotel room, basically, and his first night in the hotel some of the timeline in the story is a, is a little wonky in my opinion, but his first night in the hotel he discovers that his old friend and schoolmate William Turner is also staying in the town and potentially also at this hotel uh, and william Turner 's been in this town for some time, so the two of them meet up in Hurton's hotel room during dinner one evening. It might be the same evening that Hurton arrives, that's what the text says, but that doesn't quite land for me on a narrative level. Turner agrees that the story about the statues committing murders is rubbish. And when Hurton suggests that the two of them go out and try to find the thing that's causing all this chaos, Turner agrees. And why should they even wait? They can go out this evening around 11 p.m. Hurton asks whether or not they should bring weapons, and Turner unbuttons his coat to reveal a brace of pistols. And here, Hurton is not to be outdone. So he opens up his traveling trunk and shows Turner his own little pistol collection. And Hurton picks up two pistols, loads them, and puts them in his side pockets. And now they're ready to go. This is the tech thriller portion of the story.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love this. I mean, a brace of pistols is the phrase that we get here. And I do love how quickly Hodgson gets to the actual. Of the story. He is not messing around here at all. We're a page and a half in before we've got dudes strapping guns to themselves to go out and deal with this uh, supernatural statue business. But because of this, right? One of the features of this quickness is that that Hurton and and Turner are actually probably a little drunk when they first go out. They they're they're drinking wine until eleven, until it's time to go out. I don't know how many hours that's been, but you know it's been at least two, maybe three or four. And maybe the fact even that they're that they're getting this armed and this excited about it suggests that they've had more wine than is really necessary at this at this point. This is not you know not a good thing to do at home.
1: Yeah, that's an absolutely crucial detail to the story. These guys are a little bit loaded here <laughs> when they're ready to go out. I mean, Turner kind of just bursts into Hurton's room uh, while he's eating dinner. And this is not the first Hodgson story we've read where uh, there are two kind of male protagonists. It's a two-hander in a lot of ways. And they're just bursting into each other's hotel rooms all the time. This might have been just a feature of living in the 19th century.
0: Yeah. I mean, these are all these sort of like buddy blank stories that Hodgson loves to write. I don't know. This is a buddy statue? story?
1: Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Though the statue's no one's friend, it turns out.
0: Fair enough, fair enough, yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, once the two men get outside, uh, they realize it's pretty cold, and here Hurton's adventurousness wanes. Perhaps he's sobering up in the face of a winter storm coming on. Turner basically tells Hurton to hang in there, because they'll just go look at the statue and confirm that it's there, and then they can go back to the warm hotel and go to bed but it's also very dark. And the moon is not providing any additional lighting. And because the clouds have come in and covered up the stars, as I said, it's just dark. And all that Hurton can really see is just some lights twinkling off the lake that is situated in the park or just beyond the park. When Hurton and Turner get to the statue's pedestal in the park, they discover that it is in fact empty. And that freaks them out. So they just turn tail and head back to the hotel. They're really just not ready to deal with this at this point. At about the halfway mark back to the hotel from the pedestal, Hurton looks back and he sees some bushes part and some shadows shift around off the park trail. Hurton yells out at this point and Will turns around and he begins to run because of what he's seen. Will is, you know, Turner a giant thing moves out of the bushes and the shadows. And it is fast. It's moving fast. And it's moving faster than the two men can really move. So they just sprint as fast as they can. They're like a 100 yards from the park gate. And they are running out of breath. And fortunately, before they collapse from exhaustion, Turner and Hurton make it to the park gate, which at this point in the story, it feels kind of like a supernatural barrier for the statue. And as they cross that barrier, they turn around and discover that they are no longer being pursued. So they walk back to the hotel without any further incident. The next morning, Turner bursts into Hurton's hotel roof around breakfast time. Turner expresses to Hurton kind of some disappointment about how cowardly they acted the previous night. And Hurton knows he really can't respond to this because he knows it's true. So Turner tells Hurton that they've got to see this matter through to the end now, if only for their own sakes, to really reclaim their masculinity, their sense of courage. But first things first, they should approach the statue in the daytime. Hurton thinks this is a good idea, and he tells Will that if there was anything out there with them last night its footprints are going to appear in the snow that fell last night. So they'll see the footprints. Obviously, it wasn't a heavy snowfall, so nothing would have covered up these tracks. So they head out again to the park. And when they arrive back at the statue's pedestal, they discover that it is once again occupied by the statue. And the statue looks exactly like the thing that had chased them last night. At this point, Hurt and Will do some uh, scooby doing. I think is the right way to put it. <laughs> they spread out to see if they can find any footprints in the snow. And if they find them, they'll be able to figure out just how many people are behind this hoax. But they cannot find any footprints or any other types of disturbances that would indicate foul play or hoax making or uh, you know, the mayor trying to haunt the carnival so that uh, the town doesn't shut down or something <laughs> like that. Well, here we get a description of the statue. Hurton examines the statue more closely at this point. Seen in broad daylight, it's clear to him that the statue was meant to represent some deity. It's eight feet tall. Its face is large, and everything about it is large. And it kind of wears this countenance of extreme cruelty. On its head, it wears a strange headdress that's formed of a jet black substance, It's clear that the body of the statue has been carved from a single block of milk white marble, and its right hand hangs a twisted cloth, and the left hand is empty, though it's kind of half closed. Hurton had heard Turner speak of this statue as a god, but really, as he's looking at it more closely, he thinks it's more likely that the form of the statue, the way the robes hang and whatnot, uh, is female, and that this statue is really a goddess. So he asks Turner if it could be the case that this is a statue of a woman, a goddess. And, and Turner basically you know, says here, like, what difference does it make? This thing is coming off its pedestal somehow and killing people. That's really what we should be focusing <laughs> on here. And Hurston reproaches Turner for his comments here, because it seems as though Turner has fallen into the trap of superstition that the townspeople have been carrying around. And Turner says he's not superstitious about this statue, but he can't think of any other explanation for the strange goings-ons. And that's a shame, Turner goes on, because the one person who could maybe shed some light on this situation is dead and gone. I'm really
0: interested here in this insistence by both of them that this statue is a deity at all, even though they don't actually recognize which one and have... As we said, even being confused about the the sex of the the figure, because you know when I see a statue of a person and I want to identify it, I want to know who is that meant to be representing. I look for specific features that will let me know who it is. Right, so silly hat, rearing horse, that's Napoleon. Uh, thick dresses, scowly face, that's Queen Victoria. Owl, uh, Athena, lightning bolt, and a beard, that's Zeus that's the only way you can tell. Otherwise, all you can tell is that it's a a person. So I wonder what it is that has led them to rule out that this is just a person at all. We're not ever really going to find out. But it's important that this is a god. I mean, it's the name of the story, right? The goddess here in the story. That's important. But I'm curious about how they even came to that conclusion at all.
1: The only thing that I can think of here is the headdress probably looks like some sort of black halo, and that's what they... And they're relying on a sort of classical representation of gods, or maybe medieval representation here, to say that because this thing is wearing a, a crown, maybe it's more of a halo, it's a strange-shaped headdress we get, that it's some sort of odd depiction of another culture's divinity or deity.
0: Yeah, and of course, as, as you said, this is going to turn out to actually be from you know way outside of, of Europe eventually so i'm not even sure that they would have necessarily recognized any of this but you know i'm picking nits here it was just something that that jumped out to me because why does he have this confusion about god or goddess in here i don't know what narratively that's doing so this is what it made me think of was how can you tell who this person
1: is yeah the overall plot of this story is really fun and pretty well executed but there are just some uh There are some oversights in the storytelling method, for sure, in this story. It did not take away my enjoyment of reading it whatsoever. uh, But I found in doing the recap, there was a lot I kind of had to cover up and stutter through because I think Hodgson wrote this quickly and didn't really go through and edit all the details appropriately.
0: Yeah, we're going to be talking about craft a little bit in the discussion, but I'll just say right here too, the story is super fun, even, even though it has some problems. It's an amazing episode of Scooby-Doo.
1: Yeah, I was thinking it was a great episode of Supernatural that they never did, but... Uh,
0: uh, well, that's about the same show, right? Yeah, so, that's uh,
1: true. That's true. They did do a crossover, in fact. So... Well, as we said, Turner has some knowledge about where the statue came from, or at least knowledge of the person who, who knows about it. And now Hurton wants to know who that person was. So now Turner provides some much needed exposition. I'm gonna read Turner's dialogue here because I really like Hodgson's dialogue in general, and this is a fun bit of writing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read uh, Turner's speech. Uh, I'm not going to do it in a British accent, but it's so much more fun if you can imagine it with a British accent, I think. Turner says this. Well, it's this way. For some years, an old Indian colonel called Wiggum lived here. He was a queer old stick and absolutely refused to have anything to do with anybody. In fact, with the exception of an old Hindu serving man, he saw no one. About nine months ago, he and his servant were found brutally murdered, strangled, so the doctor said. And now comes the most surprising part of it all. In his will, he left the whole of this huge estate to the citizens of the town to be used as a park. So that's a little bit of background of how this park got here. And ostensibly, this statue is this statue was part of old Colonel Wiggum's estate. The main thing that jumps out to Hurton here from Turner's speech is that the old Colonel was strangled. And this jumps out to Hurton because all of the other victims of the statue have been strangled as well. The fact that there was a seven month lag between the Colonel's murder and Sally Morgan's seemed to have thrown authorities off the scent, or what really passes for authorities in this town at all. <laughs> so, Turner takes a sample of the statue with him before they leave in order to confirm that they are indeed dealing with a marble statue and not some sort of odd supernatural object. They discover that the statue's marble, and that kind of concludes the investigation for the day. Really, the first two thirds of the story are uh, the action portion, and their investigation uh, doesn't really take place until the action concludes. But nothing happens for about a week. And so, what is their investigation, which they're not really thinking about because they're just kind of drinking and taking pistols to the park at night? It really just stalls out. The men enjoy the town and visit the park and continue to examine the statue, but they're not really doing anything. Things are quiet. No one gets murdered. The statue never leaves its pedestal. But then, one morning, the men are awoken by a terrible scream followed by a cry of agony. They grab their pistols and their bathrobes and burst out of their hotel rooms and down to the hotel entrance. They look around by candlelight and see nothing for a moment. But then they see a young woman lying across the steps leading to the door, the grand entrance of the hotel. They run to her and bring her into the hotel. And it's obvious that she's dead. And Turner turns her collar down and examines her neck and finds a livid wheel around it. She has been strangled And both men recognize that the time for action is now. They dress quickly and go to the tap room close by, where I guess people are getting some early morning drinking on, uh, try to get a mob together to hunt this thing, whatever it is. One man of the crowd volunteers quickly, and two two other older men sheepishly agree to join the hunt. Turner and Hurton, taking charge of the situation, tell the other men to go get lanterns and sticks and join them as soon as they're ready. The group starts patrolling the streets and very quickly comes across the figure of the statue moving away in the distance. They try to stalk it quietly, but Turner trips on something inexplicably, and his pistol reports due to the impact and the way he falls. The thing turns around and it sees the group coming for him, and it starts to run away. And Hurton notices that This thing is enormous and it's dressed exactly like the marble goddess. The group of men chase it down and when the group is about a hundred feet away, the thing turns around and kind of stares them down and it, it stops them all in their tracks. Hurston is frozen out of pure fear, but that only lasts a moment. He pulls out his pistol and shoots at the thing. One of the men leaps forward to start running and the thing turns and just runs away again. Hurton separates from the group in order to try to head it off by the lake so that they're going to try to surround it and trap it. They're coming at it from different directions. So Hurton and Turner take one route and the townsmen take another. Turner and Hurston lose sight of it pretty quickly, but soon they hear another cry in the early morning or the night. They run to meet up with the group. As they approach, two men are leaning over something on the ground. Hurton is really excited about this. And so he asks if they caught the thing. But as Hurton approaches, he realizes that the figure on the ground is that first brave young man, that volunteer who stood up and said, let's go get it. The thing outpaced everybody. And then it turned on them and caught this man and broke its neck. So while the other two men are tending to the man with the broken neck. They're going to take him back to town. Turner and Hurton decide to continue their pursuit. They're able to track the thing because of the snow, and they follow it sort of to the edge of the lake. It's going in the direction of the lake. As soon as they see it, they fire their pistols. And at this, the the thing jumps over the railings and into the lake. Hurton thinks that they must have hit it. And Will kind of laughs and shrugs him off and says, well, whether or not we hit it, marble doesn't flow. So it's down there. But they want to be sure. So they go over to where the thing went over the railing. There's no air bubbles. Nothing comes up after a few minutes. And they just decide to go back home. On their way back, they pass the pedestal in the park. And Turner shows Hurton that the pedestal is bare and empty. The statue is still gone.
0: Yeah this scene is is crazy. I mean it really ramps up the 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 tension here in really the most brutal horrific way. I mean this 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 guy getting his his neck snapped while all of these guys are are running around with guns, maybe all of them a little bit drunk as well. That's a little unclear about what what they were actually consuming at the taproom for for breakfast, maybe small beer. It's a good breakfast beer, you know, right? But the stakes now are so much higher, right? Because it's not just that maybe every once in a while, this statue is coming to life at night and murdering somebody. Now the statue seems to be responding to them in some way. And so it has to be stopped. But at the same time that Hodgson ratchets up sort of the stakes here, he also ratchets up the tension with this revelation that holy crap, maybe maybe it actually is the statue that has come to life. Where did the statue go? This is some really great storytelling craft here.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I thought this whole chase scene was fantastic, even though the the time is unclear. Maybe it's like 3 30 or 4 in the morning and this waitress who's been murdered is just coming on to prep for the breakfast shift or whatever she's doing. Um, and so it's still dark. Out, it's dark enough that they need lanterns. They're all probably only out for like 30 minutes, so the sun never really comes up. But this whole chase scene is so well written and it's so exciting. And there are these elements of of sort of tragedy mixed in with heroics, and I, I really enjoyed it. It is a great bit of craft. I think you're absolutely right to say that. Well, that's pretty much the main action of the story, and, and now we're kind of Now we're going to kind of have to figure out what even happened here. That's that's the next task that Hodgson has before him. So the men all return to town, and you know the next day, a bunch of townsfolk head out to destroy the statue once and for all. So they take their like hammers and chisels and sledgehammers and stuff. But but they all come back with their tools, and no work has been done. That's clear. They're kind of awestruck. The statue still has not returned. The pedestal remains empty. And Hearn is really unsatisfied when he hears this. He's unsatisfied by the way his adventure has generally turned out. So he decides to follow his instincts and begin investigating the whole thing from the top. He asks around town where the library of the late Colonel Wiggum ended up, and not the building that would have been on the estate, but the books and and whatnot. He thinks maybe there are some journals or papers in there that will help explain what has just occurred. So he gets access to the library and eventually after some disheartening searching and rummaging about, he finds an old journal and he finds a sketch of the marble goddess like right off the bat like the first page is a uh, is like an in ink and is like a pen and ink sketch of this thing and he's really excited he thinks he's on the right track. So he reads the journal and he learns about the colonel's exploits in India. Colonel Wiggum was engaged in a, in a type of work, and that work was exterminating thugs in all caps here. Uh, or at least the, it's it presented like it's a sort of a proper noun activity. Uh, and as Colonel Wiggum is engaged in this, he finds a large idol, which turns out to be this marble statue, and he finds this thing in the process of sort of raiding temples and destroying heretical religions and their artifacts and their followers. This is basically, uh, Indiana Jones in the temple of doom. As the colonel goes about this stuff, he even has a nasty run in in which he nearly dies, uh, with the high priest of one of the temples. And it was actually the temple that this deity, this statue that he found that the, the high priest presided over and this temple was dedicated to Kali, the goddess of death. But something about this statue really struck the colonel. He thought it was too good to destroy. So he didn't. He just wrapped it up and had it shipped back home to England. Hurton really thinks this is kind of a cool story, and it's a nice bit of backstory for the the statue, but it actually doesn't tell him anything. It doesn't shed any additional light on the problem of the marble statue coming to life and killing people.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things we're going to take up in the discussion. I I do want to talk a little bit about this use of thugs here. Thug actually is a proper noun. We use this word just to mean, I don't know, hoodlum or or gangster or something, but it actually refers to a specific type of people uh, in India in the 18th and 19th century, maybe earlier than that. Well, definitely earlier than that. But in terms of of literature, 18th and 19th century, the the thugs that Hurton tells us about here are thuggy. This is a a secretive Indian sect of Kali worshippers. Well, talk more about who Kali is in, in just a minute. That's going to matter for the story. But the the thuggy, this is where we get that word thug from. But the connection is that the, the thuggy, they used violence as part of their beliefs. And, and what they did was murder and rob travelers, almost always by strangling them. There's a lot of lore about this. I mean, they became a huge part of the pop cultural understanding of 19th century India and Europe. I mean, they're All over Victorian novels, for example, and as you said, Brandon, I mean Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is directly related to this. I'm not actually sure that thuggy is used in that film, but they do talk about this cult and how it's been, uh, it had been eradicated uh, in the 19th century, but now it's it's back in the 19, I guess that's the 1930s. That story is taking place, and we should say though that almost everything in that film is just totally an invention for that film. It's not actually based on on even. Other literature that has made things up, but the the real thuggy were considered a major problem by the British government of India in the first half of the nineteenth century and I, I do want to just have us remember that this is actually before India is properly a part of the the British state, properly a part of the British Empire. At this time, the 1830s, it's still the private empire of the, the Amazon of the the day, the the British East India Company, which actually had the largest military in the world, even though it was not a government, it was just a, a private mercenary army, still the largest military in the world and that is actually pointed out to us in the story when Colonel Wigman is introduced to us for the very first time as an Indian colonel because this phrase distinguishes him from a colonel in the actual. British Army. And the British East India Company did make a real serious effort to eradicate the thuggy in the eighteen thirties. That is probably the period that Hodgson has in mind for this backstory. So this also then I think helps my understanding that this story is taking place no later than the eighteen seventies and probably the eighteen fifties or the eighteen sixties. So all of this backstory is from a world almost a century removed from the one of, of Hodgson's audience here.
1: Right. And Hodgson is really leaning on adventure. Literary tropes of the time as well, so he he's not only working with, as we pointed out, sort of a real cultural context of people's understanding of the British East India Company and the and the British Empire, and uh, concerns about invasions from France, and he's leaning on those tropes that are all almost dead to us now uh, to tell his story. And so, one thing I love about reading, you know, some of this adventure fiction is is finding these tropes and figuring out are they truly dead or is there some way to revive them? And obviously you can't revive them (laughs) to the racist level that these uh, people were using them or even uh, use some of these sort of um, cultural representations, uh, but there might be analogs for our time about corporations and mercenaries and people that stand in the way of their progress and what's going on. There's there's more abstract ideas that still work in adventure fiction.
0: Absolutely. And we're going to talk about some of those things in the discussion as well.
1: So we just got done talking about how Hurton has read through this sort of adventure travelogue and diary, but hasn't found anything that helps him. So he's ready to go. He stands up and he's looking around him one last time, maybe hoping for some bit of inspiration. And he finds a half sheet of paper that had fallen out of the diary and it's on the ground. So he picks it up, he looks at it, and he has an epiphany about the mystery. This sheet of paper holds the key to the whole thing. So Hurton is ready to blow this case wide open. But he has to grab Turner at the hotel, so he goes and grabs Turner, and they get to the and they make their way to the pedestal in the park. And as they're running, they sort of cause a sort of impromptu parade or mob of some kind, uh, because these are the two men that have tried to heroically save the town, and people are aware of their activities and they want to follow them now where they go. So many people have joined them, and they reach the pedestal. And, and Hurton now examines the pedestal, and he's almost doing a, a sort of performance piece here, because the crowd has formed a semicircle around him. He finds a little latch at the bottom of the altar uh, of the pedestal, and he switches it, and he hears a loud click. Slowly, slowly something rises from the center of the pedestal. And the crowd gets excited. Some people are panicking as they see this face emerge. And eventually, the whole statue emerges. And there stands Kali, the goddess of death in all her marbled glory.
0: Yeah, we should we should pause here and talk about Kali a little bit. Kali is a Hindu goddess, uh, principally a, a creator goddess regarded as a divine mother of the whole universe. But she is sometimes also regarded as a destructive figure as well, someone who will also destroy the universe in the end. And a lot of her iconography is is violent and, and really kind of scary. The bunch of swords, garland of human heads. I mean, it's terrifying stuff. And this is potentially one understanding, actually, of thuggy violence, that the, the murdered, travelers were meant as a sacrifice to Kali that would keep her satiated and therefore stave off her destroying the world for another day. That is almost certainly nonsense, but it is something that people in Britain would have believed, maybe, maybe even Hodgson himself or, or people at least near Hodson. I should say too, that of course, we have absolutely no records from anyone who was actually a thuggy that are not filtered through the interpretation of some British uh, uh, official. So we don't really know actually all that much about them directly, but we you can certainly see all these ideas here in this story, which is really what matters. And, and Kali, right, she is the goddess of death in the, the title of the story. Hodgson describes this Kali temple where the statue came from as a sort of holy of holies of thugdom where they're carried on their their brutal and disgusting rites. Again, right, that's as you said, this exact plot of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where people are having their still beating hearts ripped out of their bodies before being lowered into a, a lava pit that you just have in your temple for some reason. Actually Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is a great weird fiction story, isn't it? it? Really yeah, is. we, it really is. yeah. we should we should find some way to do that story at some point. I don't know how that would be, but that would be a lot of fun to do. But anyway, that's the background on Cully that we that we need here before we get to the revelation of what has gone on.
1: Right. So Hurton, after revealing that the statue was sort of on a miniature elevator of a kind, steps up to the pedestal once again. And he fumbles around it for a moment, but then he finds what he's looking for. And he does some clicking around, I suppose, again, or some latch finding. And a small portal opens up, uh, like a little door uh, in the pedestal. And this is large enough for men to enter. Somebody runs and gets a lantern because it's always dark when they need to discover something in this story. And he shines the lantern in there and it reveals that there is a pit about 10 feet deep just beneath the pedestal. So he has someone else go and get a ladder and somebody goes get gets a ladder and brings it back. And these are sentences that don't need to be in a story, but Hodgson puts them here to delay the action a little bit. And so Hurton and Turner go down into the pit and they explore a little. Basically, they find a room with a bed and some supplies, and that means that someone has been living down here. Uh, Then they find an entrance to a tunnel and follow that, and it goes the wrong way. And then they go back and there's another tunnel and they go the right way. And by wrong way and right way, I merely mean in terms of the solution to the the mystery of this story and the ghastly series of events. And when they follow this tunnel, the the right tunnel, they find that it goes uh, out to the surface of the lake. And at this point, Hurton remembers the thing jumping into the lake. And so he just wants to take a moment and look out over the lake from their vantage point point or from how the lake would have washed anything up to this kind of rough shore, uh, cave entrance, I suppose. Hurt has Turner hold the lantern around, and he sees something out in the water, and he plunges his arms into the freezing cold water, and he brings what he thought he saw out. And it's a mask, a heavy mask, that is just like the face of Kali on the statue that they left on the pedestal. And this is how the story now ends. Workmen went down to the lake after this whole thing went down, and they discovered the body of an enormous Hindu, draped from head to foot in white. The body showed that a few bullets shot the night of the chase had hit their mark. The the man had died trying to get back to his hideout beneath the ground via the lake tunnel, and no one really knows who this person was, though it's clear that he, you know, donned this mask of Kali and, and committed these murders. Uh, but afterwards, and also before in the story, among the colonel's papers, they found a reference to the high priest once again. And Hurton supposes that it was this high priest, the one who had nearly killed the colonel in India, that this high priest had come to England to sort of reap vengeance on the men who had desecrated his deity, Kali, and her temples. And so the high priest took on Kali's aspect and got his revenge. And this is the end of the
0: story. Yeah. So in the end, it totally is a Scooby-Doo story. It was actually just a dude in a costume after all, uh, though, you know, horribly, horrifically murdering people in response to the brutalization of his religion and his holy site by uh, by imperialists. Uh, so that's actually really where I want to go first with the discussion. We're going to talk about class and we're going to talk about writing craft as well. But I do want to talk about Orientalism, colonialism, and, and imperialism first. And, and really the first, question that I have for you, Brandon, and this is really just kind of in the broadest possible terms, is who is the actual villain of this story? And, and really, I guess what I'm trying to get at here, maybe what, I, what I really am trying to say is who is ultimately to blame for this situation from the perspective of the town? Is it this Hindu priest or is it the the colonel whose violence has created this whole situation
1: in the first place? That That's a really fantastic question, because we're brought into this story sort of as things are taking place. This this is a classic setup for, as I said in the beginning, kind of the stranger comes to town setup of a story where it it doesn't really matter as much to the reader how things got that way, but things are out of whack and somebody from the outside needs to come in and set things to right. And I really think that though Hurton kind of enjoys reading the colonel's adventures. Um, The way the town sort of tore down the estate in a lot of ways, uh, moved his books, they couldn't move the statue, um, but they're ready to tear it down at a moment's notice. The generally unsympathetic description that we get of the colonel and his serving man by the townspeople in the bit of exposition we get about it really leads me to believe that the townspeople hold the Colonel responsible for this—that uh, that he's the unsympathetic character. It doesn't mean it's just what has happened. What the high priest has come back to do, um, especially given that there's sort of a lapse in explanation of the colonel having been murdered, which is presented to us, the audience, as a, an act of justice, and the seventh month lag that is leading to these other serial murders. That doesn't quite track for me. Uh, but I think who kicked off the violence, what right needed to be wronged, why it needed to be discovered and set to right is the the colonel's wrongdoing in the East India Company. Yeah. And
0: that's what I find so fascinating about this, because this story could have just been a, a murder mystery about the colonel and his uh, Indian servant. And I think if that had been the case, I think we definitely would have been meant to understand that this was about vengeance, and, and in some sense, maybe even justice, that he's getting his just desserts in some way, and that the story would definitely be, at least on some level, a critique of of imperialism, and in particular, the, the type of sort of private mercenary imperialism of the East India Company. But then, because obviously, we have innocent people being murdered here. I mean, you know, we have the, the bell of the town, Sally, you know, uh, and this, this workman getting his neck broken, right? We we can't have any sympathy then for the Hindu priest because of that. And I actually almost wonder if Hudson didn't start with the idea of having a, a mystery about the colonel, but then realizing that he was going to end up making the colonel the unsympathetic character or making the murderer himself sympathetic and decided to, to, to throw these things in to make this the mystery so that it was clear to us that we're not supposed to find the Hindu priest sympathetic at all. I guess I was just a little bit conflicted about sort of where he was coming down on the, the sympathies towards the
1: priest or, or towards the colonel and so on. I think an important piece of the story that we didn't really hit on that much, we just mentioned it in the recap, is the fact that this estate was donated to the town by the colonel who had kind of nothing to do with the town. Um, and this clearly becomes a type of uh, important agora or like common area for the town for people to go and spend time. And we have no mention of like a church in this town or, you know, like a meeting house of any other kind other than like the tap room in the hotel. And I wonder if Hodgson isn't trying to set this up in the same way that somebody unfamiliar with cultural norms of another culture might go in and desecrate a temple, destroy the artifacts, do all this stuff uh, that, that, Uh, you're right, it's not clear in the story where he's coming down on. But if he's trying to not flip that on its head and have this person kind of come to this town, think that the lord of the town was the colonel, that the people still go and visit this place where he used to live all the time and, and spend a lot of time there, maybe spend a lot of time at this shrine of Kali, which they don't know what it is, and begins to think that he's going to do to the lord's subjects to the colonel's subjects, what the colonel had done to his acolytes. And that's not explicit in the story, but it's the only explanation I can come up with as this guy's living underground for seven months yeah. and it just looking at the town and its behavior and maybe drawing some incorrect conclusions and starting by killing uh, the most worshipped person in the town, the bell of the town. Yeah, that that's a really
0: interesting read, and I hadn't made that connection with between Sally or you know about her about her beauty. That's really fascinating. And this whole story actually begins with a joke about the possibility of a French invasion, and then it goes on to tell us uh, this series of ghastly murders that center around the British conquest of India, and uh, especially about Indian attempts at resistance to that conquest. I mean, that's what the the thuggy cult is doing is trying to resist being conquered or, or resist their oppressors once they've been conquered. So the question I want to ask about that, Brandon, is is what, what if anything, do you see as the role of war in this story? Is there some sense in which this is a story about war and about, uh, about large-scale violence?
1: It's worth encountering the Quickness to which both Turner and Hurton are willing to draw pistols (laughs) uh, and how armed they are. I don't know how much of that was like the culture of the 1850s. Just, you know, bring as many pistols as you can on any trip you go on. Um, but it seems like these are men who are excited by the idea and willing to do violence quickly. Uh, It's not clear what their history is other than them have gone, them having gone to school together. Um, but perhaps they were in the British army or perhaps they were veterans of the east india company mercenary army in some way or they're excited by the tales of adventure and exoticism and heroics of these people and so they're 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 imitating those sort of stories in their uh in their current lives or Hodgson is just a really good adventure writer and knows what tropes to lean on like when we see indiana jones throwing his pistol and his whip into the suitcase we know we're going to get a great story so it's really hard for me to say to what degree, like, large scale violence or war is a part of this story. Um, but I think Hodgson is, on some level, showing his audience that it's not just soldiers who are ready to do violence in a time of war. If war efforts and propaganda are really effective, if things are going great, um, it's going to inspire other people to be ready to do violence for other reasons. For the same sorts of noble goals that, that soldiers are, uh, doing in warp. Glory, honor, courage, you know, whatever.
0: So I have kind of a, a weird reading of what's going on here with imperialism that is also wrapped up in class and some of the ways that class is written about here. And this is probably total nonsense. So this I'm just going to pitch this to you, Brandon, and see what you say about it. So the, the colonel got rich during his service with the East India Company, and then he bought a former aristocratic estate in a, in a community that he's not a member of. He's not from this town. This isn't where he grew up. He didn't leave from here to to go join the East India Company army. He was just looking around for an aristocratic estate that he could buy. And there happened to be one here. This estate has tunnels from the English Civil War. Maybe these were escape tunnels. The English Civil War, of course, anti-royalist, anti-aristocratic. So that's, I think, can't possibly be invoked without asking some questions about, about class, right? Or at least about the value of the aristocracy. But the colonel has no heirs. And so he leaves his property to the local community, to this town here but the the narrator of the story Hurton he is uh he's a knight he's knighted he might actually be a lord that's not quite clear but he's addressed as sir throughout the story no attention is called to that but turner also seems to be in his same class so they're aristocrats of some sort. And they are the ones who have saved this town from the Hindu priest. These aristocrats have saved the town maybe from the foolish actions of uh, a non-aristocratic Englishman who went off on an adventure, became rich and came back to England and thought he might pretend to be an aristocrat, but didn't actually know how to do it, couldn't do it right. So what I was looking at here is is maybe something about along the lines of we're meant to understand imperialism, British imperialism, kind of as a project of the middle class and not the aristocracy, that it's the, the middle class or maybe the gentry, the sort of upper middle class, people of means, but not people of titles who want to go out and gain the prestige of uh, aristocrats and can only do that via imperialism. And that doing that actually threatens the stability of merry old England in some way.
1: You always see so much more of class in British stories than I do. And it's so fascinating uh, to hear you break that down. I think that could certainly be a part of uh, what Hodgson is doing in this story. It's, It's hard for me to say for sure, my reading is based on chivalric romance tropes of the story. And so, like, is always the case whenever we cover a British story, I don't see class. I see storytelling tropes. <laughs> so, well, and, and, and you're absolutely right, though, to point out that this is a real problem. This kind of class, this low key simmering class conflict that's taking on that this new form of wealth acquisition has allowed, uh, merchant class with a private army to create people whose wealth exceeds that of uh, landholding, gentry, and, and aristocrats of the past. Definitely a conflict in the story. And it might not even be something that Hodgson is consciously thinking of. It might just be a fact of his situation. Though The fact that he does set this in the past may mean he's thinking about it more consciously than, uh, than maybe I'd, I'd initially give him credit for. I see the classic tropes of, as I said, the chivalric romance genre. The stranger comes to town bit is the story of an errant knight, a wandering knight who has pledged his loyalty or fealty to some lord who is trying to do something, uh, maybe has some goal, The most famous one is the uh, King Arthur's search for the Holy Grail, though King Arthur does not go out and embark on the search himself. He sends out errant knights to go across the whole land, and they're supposed to represent the Lord's beliefs and his morality and his code, but also they're disconnected. They're kind of cut off from their uh, moral authority in some way. And so they have to rely on their own wits and they get seduced a lot and have to save women. And there's all kinds of crazy <laughs> trouble they get into. And and that that is the core of the stranger comes to town genre. We saw that in you know, Western movies in the, in the 1970s and 1950s and 1960s. Oh, yeah. And Westerns are just chivalric
0: romances. I mean, they're the, almost the, the most direct descendant of that, though superhero comics as well. The whole Marvel cinematic universe is, these, is is in line with these chivalric tales. And I think you're absolutely right that these guys are clearly errant knights. They're clearly wandering knights. I mean, they are knights that are addressed as Sir in the story, and they are guys who just seem to be wandering around from town to town. They're a little surprised, but also a little excited when it turns out they've both wandered to the same town <laughs> at the same time. Now we can get super drunk and go out with our brace of pistols and have a little fun.
1: Right, exactly. And I think I think that is is uh, that that is the thing that like kind of leapt out to me in this story. But you, you found kind of a, a, a new richness to it that I just didn't see. And so I'm really grateful for that reading.
0: Well, I would love to hear people come to the forum and tell me that that's a really terrible and stupid <laughs> reading for all sorts of reasons. I'm sure there are. But I, you know, I was just sort of looking for for some kind of coherent reading of the, the story there. And all of the this- Sort of these class tensions really did just jump out to me here.
1: One thing we didn't mention at, at this point in our conversation, but sort of hinted at earlier on in the episode, is the way that Hurton and Turner even think about the common folk and the town folk in this place. They're small-minded, they're superstitious, they can't possibly be right. What do they know? They haven't seen the world, they haven't been out wandering for a long time. And and so that that's another example of a kind of the class distinctions, that they're going to come into this town. These people are even more cut off from what the uh, authority of the kingdom or the Lord wants. They have a false Lord in place in in some respect and are unable to solve their own problems. And so they need that uh, extra intervention from an outsider.
0: Exactly. The, the, this whole problem is because of a false aristocrat, right? If you're an aristocrat, uh, the, the ideal, anyway, For you as a member of that class, the thing that you tell yourself, the story you tell yourself about your class identity, I mean, and this is the exact plot of of Downton Abbey, right, is that your job is to provide order and stability and protection for the the townsfolk, for the people who, who work your lands for you and so on. And that's what you're for. That's why you get the nice house and the better food and so on is because you're the person, you're the class who will provide those things for people. But what we have in this town is a false aristocrat, someone who has the means, but doesn't have the tradition of that and the whole situation has to be put aright by these wandering knights, these errant knights, who the people who are really are actually a part of that class. Anyway, that's my reading of it. We'll see if that if that holds any water. So I, I want to talk about craft. We we've, we've pointed out some places where we thought Hudson could have told the story a little bit differently. We didn't need a whole paragraph about the latter, for example. But on the whole, I really loved this story. This was a story that super excited me on a lot of levels. But I do think there's a massive problem with the the narrative here, and it's that the discovery in the library does not link directly to the resolution of the plot. Which is to say, it doesn't help the heroes stopped the murders. It only explains the motive for the murders, which they've actually already stopped. That is not a very satisfying resolution, I think, for contemporary readers for here in 2020. So the question I've got for you, Brandon, is what would you do to keep these elements, because I think they're all great elements, but to make them have more of a direct impact actually on the resolution of the plot?
1: What a fantastic question. Because the main problem that I have with this story is Hodgson's loose... Uh, use of time he has these guys investigate a little bit, but then they sit on their thumbs for a week and don't do anything and and that 's the point of the story where it's kind of slow. the action is lulled where you want to bring in another sense of excitement to the reader to the audience, and that's the point where you have them investigate. Uh, we do an exposition dump that you know in the first third of the story that doesn't mean anything. We don't have these guys dealing with the fact that they went out drunk and half-cocked, literally, <laughs> uh, to go after this marble statue. Then we get exposition. Then nothing happens. Then there's a murder. Then they kill the murderer, essentially, but they haven't solved the mystery. And it's structurally unsound in terms of what we'd consider storytelling today. And I think what we have to do is approach is think about what type of story Hodgson is telling here? Was he telling a mystery story or was he telling an action story? And I think he got kind of confused along the way here. It's clear to me that this story could have used another truly solid draft and it would have been perfect. And I think the main thing to do would have been to restructure the story and think about how he's using time to tell the story um, because there's light and then there's not light. There's uh, mornings where People are still in the tap room, which means... I don't know. What time does the tap room open? Like, all day? Is it open all day? I think I don't it's know open all going. day. I think, yeah. are eating,
0: I think people are eating breakfast there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: but it's it's got to be like 4 or 4.30 in the morning, as I said, because it's it's still very dark. Um, this scene with the... Well, if
0: it's, winter, if it's winter in England, it could be 8 o'clock in the morning.
1: Well, that's true. I think they find the waitress pretty early, though, and then they go get dressed. I, it's just... His use of time here just feels pretty discombobulated to me. The... Actual investigative work that takes place in the library is almost written out of the story, because by the time we get to the end of the story, we get this line that's pretty confusing about, while well, they went back and looked at the colonel's papers and found this reference to a high priest. Well, we already got that information from Hurton when he was investigating in the library we've pointed out that that narrative doesn't really do much for Hurton. It doesn't really do much for the reader, the Colonel's diary. What matters is that a piece of paper fell out of there. Um, and I think there's much more you could do with that. And that piece of paper, it's also clear, only revealed that the pedestal has traps and mechanisms on it. It didn't reveal anything else that's going on. So there was no confirmation of the mystery of this story. And I think that's because Hodgson was writing an adventure story. And I don't know if he had a word limit that he had to hit. Uh, but this is how he chose to tell the story. And it does feel just confused in portions as a result of poor structuring and uh, poor use of time.
0: Well, I think I think structure is is right. I think you sort of hinted at there, right, that we have this lull uh, of of a few days, and that lull is the is the break between Act One and Act Two, and then Act Two actually is where we get this amazing action sequence, this chase scene. Then we have another act break, and it's in Act Three that we get all the research happening, and that really is backwards. That's the reverse of the way it should be. The research should be Act Two, and the action should be Act Three, and should provide the climax of the. Story. This, I mean, this is the format of every Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode ever, right? The research is the middle feature of the the story but for that to work here the thing is the research actually has to lead to the resolution of the plot which means that the thing that they find in the research has to tell them how to find and or stop the killer in the first place which you could very easily do here right i mean you could have just switched it up that they do figure out through the research they find you know the information about this mechanism or something but they haven't had the big chase scene yet and so now they have the mechanism so they go to the the pedestal and they open it up and they find the killer in the there, and that's what leads to the chase scene or something like that. It would have been not difficult to have 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 reversed that, and that would have made the research seem more significant and all of it more satisfying. I think.
1: Yeah, and how great would it have been to have a, a chase through the dark tunnels with lanterns that are snuffing out, and the killer obviously knows where he's going, and the people in the town don't because this is their first discovery. It would have provided a much more plausible chase scene. Uh, if they're going through these tunnels to have someone get murdered, to have someone have their neck broken by the killer when they're just chasing them down the street. I mean, this is sort of like, you know, uh, a haunted house story. You don't want to leave the house and run out into the street because then you've lost where the action can take place, right. right? So that, that I think is another sort of misstep that Hodgson takes here is not even to have the chase scene really take place fully in the park, but to start out on the open streets in the early morning and then go to the park. It would have been far more coherent to have only two set pieces in the story as well and have the the escape caves be one of them that they discovered during the research period. Yeah. And that's certainly just a
0: scene. That's a setting that I would have liked to have seen as, as well. I mean, of course, that would have really even hearkened to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom even more so. We know that came afterward, but it's hard not to see so many parallels here. I'd be really excited to, to talk about that at some point. But I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman,
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Hodgson's The Goddess of Death. Let us know if you see any more connections to any other Indiana Jones movies or uh, let us know where you land on our discussion of class and chivalric romance and the tropes that Hodgson is leaning on. We'd love to hear from you.
0: And if you'd like to help us reach our new Patreon goals, please do check us out at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. We'd love to make more podcast episodes for you. Next time, we're going to interrupt our regular coverage of what won the Patreon votes to air our live show from PhilCon 2019. And that was Lovecraft's story from beyond. We had initially planned to air that in between batches of stories, but it turns out that our discussion of the next story is actually going to take into account from beyond and uh, really, especially some of the discussion about From Beyond that has uh, happened on the, the patron forum where people have had early access to the, the episode. So next time, we're going to do From Beyond. And then after that, two episodes devoted to an Algernon Blackwood novella. This is going to be the very first John Silence occult detective story, a psychical invasion. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.